electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, labor unrest spreading to health care will strikes fuel more inflation. One big bank says no. Taking the stand, the first witnesses speak out in Sam Bankman-Fried's fraud trial. Surging rates swinging a wrecking ball. Renewable projects. Will the Fed kill the clean energy dream? Canaries in the coal mine. We're going to show you the under-the-radar stocks that may hold the secret of the true state to the American consumer right now. Plus, Milan and Paris meet NASA? There's a shock pick to help design the next spacesuits for the moon. And the rise of billion-dollar jackpots with just hours till the Powerball drawing. Why are these giant jackpots happening more and more? We've got the surprising answer to that and much more over the hour. So as always, you can belly up or you can buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Get to all those stories shortly. But first up tonight, as interest rates rise, oil prices are falling. Oil having an over 5% drop today. Some good news for gas. This even as OPEC and Russia decided not to reverse their cuts and add more oil to the market. That could happen at their next big meeting, November 26th in Austria. We will be there. So, What exactly is going on with oil and gas lately? Let's try to make you smarter. Four things you need to know right now. All right, number one, and we love the machine now, don't we? All right, number one, despite some of the wild swings lately, here's something to wow your friends with at the dinner table tonight. Oil prices are now at or actually slightly below where they were one year ago. All these wild swings, but guess what? We are pretty much about a buck or two a barrel below where we were. Look at that. Maybe, hey, maybe OPEC's forecasts did have it right as China's economy continues to be clunky. Number two, oil fell today and took oil stocks with it. Is that the sign maybe of a weakening consumer? Maybe, but it could also be a technical trade in the wonderful world of hedge funds. Okay, coming into today, there was a big trade on that shorted bet against bonds and bet on oil, short bonds, long oil. That may have flipped today, which sent bonds up and oil down. We talk about, again, we did it last night, the inverse relationship, bond yields, oil, and you could see maybe they flipped. Okay, now you probably don't care about oil, but you probably do care about gasoline. And some good news is gasoline prices have begun to level off or even come down in parts of America. All right. Here's the national price chart for the AAA. Looks like one of those old wooden, remember those old wooden block maps you used to use when you were like four years old? Anyway, here you go. So this is the average price, and you can see red. Red is bad. California, you're paying $5.97 on average. And I know a lot of people watching or listening are slamming their car 
steering wheel saying I'm paying 650 or more. Cheapest gas remains sort of in the Gulf Coast southern region as well. But gas prices leveling off the national average at 378. And this may be a reason and something you may not hear anywhere else today. Gasoline demand appears to actually be falling. Look at this. In the past week, the EIA, the federal government, reports that we used 8.33 million barrels of gasoline equivalent last week per day. By the way, that's what we use pretty much every day. That was the the daily average last week. We used 8.7 million in the same week, basically the last week of September last year. We used more than that even in 2021 when parts of America were still coming out of COVID. And in 2019, the last week of September, we used 9.3 million barrels of gasoline. That is 1 million barrel. I'm doing the math, carry the one, blah, blah, blah. 1 million barrel a day equivalent of gasoline more than we used this year. Is that because of electric vehicles? Is that because of a weakening consumer just can't afford to buy gas? Or maybe C, all the above. All right, there's really no better voice to talk about all of this than our next guest. He is a legend in the energy pits. Let's bring in MBF Asset Management Corp founder and CEO, Mark Fisher. Mark, good to have you on Last Call Oil, like I said, fell today, but it's still higher than it was three weeks ago, flat for the year. What's your take on the future path of oil? Hey, Brian, I think the future path of oil um, is something I don't know if most of your viewers um, can relate to right now, but it's really, I think it depends on what happens between Saudi Arabia, the United States, and the security guarantees that Saudi Arabia wants from the United States, but the nuclear, they want, you know, some a, a nuclear reactor in, in their country. And obviously this whole thing with Israel, Saudi, and the United States, and how this plays out. Obviously, you know, the reason why oil is down $5 today, in my opinion, is because you had too many people wrong. You have this index roll that's coming up that everyone knows about. And also maybe, you know, in return for these security guarantees for the United States, and maybe because... Uh, you know, oil prices, you know, Saudi agrees to, you know, pump some more oil to decrease the price of uh, energy coming into the election year. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying it could be kind of a quid pro quo. For our viewers that don't know, basically the White House and other nations working behind the scenes to try to normalize relationships between Saudi Arabia and Israel, if it happens, a huge, huge deal and probably a very positive thing for the peoples of the region, Iran, may not be too happy about it, uh, Mark, and, and maybe you could chime in on that, maybe a different story. If we get some kind of a deal like that and maybe a, a quid pro quo, do you think the Saudis could could back off at least, not the OPEC cuts, but their solo one million barrel per day cut as kind of almost a, uh, a political gift to the U.S.? Well, that's exactly what's going on. And the interesting thing is, in this last run-up from below 70 to like 80 $90, the rhetoric coming out of Washington has been a lot more muted than it's been in the past. Why? One, because there's this deal they're trying to cut. Two, because you know the United States has basically you know, depleted the SPR to a level that they probably can't sell any more of the SPR. And three, because again, I think the rhetoric coming out of Washington doesn't really help. What would help is this global deal that we talked about 
Obviously, in that case, in return for U.S. security guarantees, sort of like what they want to do, you know, with Ukraine, you know, the United States, after, you know, this conflict with Russia hopefully ends sooner rather than later. I, I bet you that this is, in my opinion, what they're doing. Obviously, I think the floor, though, for oil has gone up. You know, I think before, you know, it was close your eyes and buy oil anytime it's below 70. Now it's probably close your eyes and buy oil below 75. So, so if we can, if we go down, maybe today was not a one-day anomaly. We continue to go down the next couple of days and weeks. You think seventy-five could be that bottom? Is there a seal? If there's a floor, is there a ceiling? Do you still think, or, or do you think I at think, all, I, a triple think, digits think, is possible? I think a ceiling's in play as long as this political football between the United States, Israel, and Saudi is in play. I also think, though, that the bigger problem long term is not so much in the price of crude oil. In the price of the refined products and gasoline, mm. oil, whatever, because then there's limited refinery capacity. As you've shown your viewers, obviously the U.S. demand for gasoline has gone down. But if you look at what's going on in third world countries and in, in Africa and in India, the demand for gasoline is, is skyrocketing. So again, it's it's a little it's a little naive just to put where we are right now in terms of domestic consumption. We really have to look at total consumption. Yeah, I mean, this is why I like the space, Mark. It's why I talk about it. It's one of the major, if not the only, maybe with gold or a couple other things, the truly global commodity. And there's so much interwoven into everything. You know, you're making a great point about all these, oh, you know, developing nations. They just want a little bit of what we had. They want a little bit of cheap energy so they can turn the lights on and drive their car and feed their family and heat their home and everything that we have taken for granted for decades here in the United States. We got a big OPEC meeting coming up on November 26th. That'll be in person, and we should be there, by the way. And that's tend to be when they when they make their moves. But do you think OPEC has actually done a? A lot of people won't like this, but done a good job in a sense that prices. They say they're about price stability. As I showed at the top of the show, prices are exactly where they were to start the year, higher than many Americans would want, but they've been stable. I think that to some degree, the OPEC meetings when they take place. It's sort of like the WWE. Okay, it's all a show. I think the decision is made prior to the OPEC meeting. I think everyone knows there what's going to happen already, and then they go ahead and announce it at the meeting. It's all, it's all, it's a show. But I think the question that I want to ask, which I don't understand, is why are we beholden to OPEC? Why, why are we not um, moving to compressed natural gas, where we can go ahead in our own, where we energy? independent in terms of natural gas we have an abundance of it because we have mark because that's a fossil fuel and we have to electrify everything we got to buy a hundred thousand dollar car that goes 270 miles we know that right but 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 in terms of we're we're not getting rid of gasoline in the near future but i do think that in this in-between time before we go to total electric i don't know when that's going to happen i don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime but with that being said compressed natural gas is number one better for your better for your car, has a higher octane, much less environmental damage, is cheaper, and we have an abundance of natural gas in this in this country, and we don't need to worry about this, and and it's much less uh, uh, dam- less damage to the environment than gasoline is, and again, you know other other parts of the world, South America, they have they run a lot of cars on, on just compressed natural gas, and yes, it does, a car doesn't go as far. But, it, but, it, but engines stay yeah. longer, and it's a lot cleaner. I mean, that's just my opinion. Yep. And by the way, Toyota will tell you that a hybrid is actually better for the environment because all in on the supply chains, the number of critical minerals used to make the hybrid battery 
would produce something like 90 different battery electric, or, you know, 90 hybrids could be made from one battery of a pure electric. So the emissions all in is less. But that's a different show and a different discussion. Mark Fisher, we appreciate your views. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. All right. Meantime, here's what happened to your money today. Here's a sully side up. The Dow broke a three-day losing streak. Treasury yields pulling back. Other indexes also rising. The NASDAQ having its best day in a month. Huh? Inside the indexes here, your stud and dud du jour. Leading the S&P 500, well, we just talked about it. Tesla up 6%, best day in nearly a month. The dud, Devon Energy, oil and gas company down 5%. In fact, all 10, nine or 10 of the worst performing stocks in the S&P were all oil and gas names as we just told you, crude oil fell. All right, we are just getting started. Up next on Last Call, Sam Bankman-Fried's blockbuster trial heating up. First witnesses take the stand. Plus, will labor strikes and wage hikes give new life to inflation? A top economist with a rather hot contrarian take will join us next. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Here's kind of an odd one. Bleach maker Clorox saying that sales and profits took a hit because of a cyber attack last quarter. The attack was disclosed in August. The same hacker group tied to recent Vegas attacks believed to be responsible. Shares of Clorox down a bit after hours. Next up, and what goes up can also come down in the same day. EV maker Rivian raising money by offering up to $1.5 billion worth of convertible bonds. Now, of course, if they're converted, that could dilute existing stockholders. So Rivian stock is down right now, about 7% on the news. However, Rivian did pop about 9% today. So up still about 2% all in the joys of Wall Street. And finally, AT&T reportedly exploring options for its 70% stake in DirecTV. They own it with private equity firm TPG. They bought it in 2021. That time, DirecTV valued around $16 billion. But they've been losing subscribers, and according to Lightman Research Group, lost about 400,000 customers in the second quarter of this year. AT&T shares not moving much on that news, but uh, see what happens to direct TV. All right, next up, it is day two in the trial of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. In opening statements, federal prosecutors and the defense painted dueling pictures of the crypto king. The prosecution arguing Bankman-Fried's FTX quote was a house of cards built on a lie. The defense countering that Bankman-Fried is simply a bad businessman, quote, math nerd who acted in good faith. 
Prosecutors also called two witnesses to the stand. The first, a commodity broker who lost over $100,000 and they went under, as well as a former friend of Bankman Freed's from MIT who also worked at FTX. Kate Rooney in the courtroom literally all day and joins us now. Uh, Kate, because we don't want to be there, but we appreciate you being there. (laughs) What was it like inside that courtroom today? What did Bankman Freed look like? So it was pretty intense in the courtroom today. Federal prosecutors kicked things off with their opening statements. And at one point, the attorneys for the government were pointing at Sam Bankman-Fried and essentially saying that he lied, that he committed fraud, painting him as the secretive executive, saying that he knew about all of these issues at FTX and that he did all of this knowingly. So intent is really what they have to prove here, but really painting a picture of sort of a villain in the courtroom. Sam Bankman-Fried's mannerisms and behavior, I mean, he is a different guy than you would have seen a year ago. He was known for that T-shirt, cargo pants, tube socks, New Balance sneakers. Today he's in a suit and his hair is a lot shorter. He's looking a lot more clean cut after spending some time uh, in federal prison awaiting trial. His defense, though, said that's not the guy, the villain that they talked about. That's not him. He's just a startup, hardworking executive who thought he was doing the right thing and made business mistakes. They said, essentially, it's not a crime to run a company into bankruptcy, and it's not a crime to spend lavishly on advertisement. He said they were competing with the likes of Google and Facebook for talent, so that's one of the ways they justified some of the real estate purchases. But two very different stories being spun here. Who else was in the room? And we know there was the witnesses. What did they say? So we had the, a couple witnesses today, and we'll continue this tomorrow. One was an FTX customer who lost, you said, more than $100,000. Another was a good friend of Sam Bankman-Fried's going back to college. He lived in the Bahamas with that group. And one of the things that's become clear throughout this trial is there's a small group of people that really knew what was going on, and he had this inner circle. This person was part of that and described what happened at Alameda. And one of the reasons he stepped down, he said, before all this happened, is that he started to realize what was going on. He walked away, and he was testifying with immunity, which is also interesting. So it sounds like that that ex-employee, Kate, pretty much threw Sam Bankman freed under the bus. If this person worked there, knew what was going on, and was so uncomfortable that they would leave despite, I'm sure, making gobs of money, that's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah. That's becoming a trend, Brian. So he has had four other executives essentially turn on him plead guilty and then cooperate. At least three of those executives are expected to testify. Caroline Mm. Ellison is the ex-CEO of his hedge fund, also his former girlfriend. They actually brought her up a lot today. The defense said to the jury, essentially, watch out for some of these witnesses and talking about they might be tainted, they might have reasons and a different prerogative for testifying because they want to strike a deal and sort of tried to talk to the jury about priming them for the witnesses that they're going to hear. But we do expect to hear from her. And I do. I think that's going to be a really personal account. And that's what people are expecting. And she was when is that? Hey, do we know when happened. that is? When will Ms. Ellison take for said stand? For. We don't know yet. It's not expected this week. We're going to hear from Gary Wong, who was co-founder of FTX. He was one of those executives that is pleading guilty and yeah. is going to testify. And he's one of those insiders. So we'll see. Caroline Ellison is one to watch. But the defense also blamed her today, saying she ran the hedge fund and she didn't do any hedging. And that's one of the reasons why this hedge fund failed. They, it did seem like it's a complicated topic, Brian. So cryptocurrency, the world of hedge funds, things we talk yeah. about on CNBC all the time. The, the prosecution tried to really simplify it and say, guys, this is fraud. And he was lying and really tried to lay it out in a way that they didn't bring 
some yeah. of the financial jargon into it, whereas the defense, it seemed like that really is kind of what they're going on yeah. here. Yeah, the, we got to let you go. The allegation is they took in a bunch of money. They flew on private jets. They, you know, they made a lot of political donations, bought a bunch of bean bags, and uh, apparently not self-care products. Kate Rooney, thank you. We'll see you for the next Thanks. six to eight Thanks, weeks. Brian. All right. Still ahead, Strike Nation now hitting healthcare. 75,000 healthcare workers out on strike. What could that mean for inflation? One economist from Goldman Sachs has an answer that may surprise you. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Another month, another strike. Now it's more than 75,000 Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers walking out of hospitals across America. Bertha Coombs on the story. Bertha, what is going on and what exactly does the union want? Well, Brian, it comes down to wages and staffing, which is a major issue in health systems across the country. Now, Kaiser Permanente tonight says that round-the-clock negotiations have now broken off. The nation's largest health system is contending with 75,000 workers, 40% of its national workforce, walking off the job this morning, making for the nation's largest ever health care strike. This involves eight unions representing mostly support staff like ER and lab techs and facilities workers at hospitals and clinics across six states. Now, hundreds of ophthalmologists and pharmacists in Virginia and Washington, D.C. were the first to walk off the job 6 a.m. Eastern this morning. That's the red on the map. They're expected to be back on the job tomorrow at 6 a.m. Eastern, but workers in Colorado, Washington State, Oregon, and California, with 65,000 of those workers are in Kaiser as based, they'll be out at least until Saturday at 6 a.m. Again, with these talks breaking off, we're not sure what that means. We're still waiting to hear from the union. Kaiser representatives earlier today had said that they'd made progress overnight, but in the meantime, the walkout is disruptive. Registered nurses, the biggest group of nurses, 21,000 of them, are not part of this. They signed off on a contract last year, but all of Kaiser's prominent hospitals, all 39, while they remain open, a lot of elective procedures have been postponed during the strike. So there is a lot that has been disrupted. And Brian, this marks the seventh major health care strike this year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And just last week, 4,000 tenant healthcare workers voted to go on strike in California if they don't get a deal by October 19th. Back to you. Yeah, uh, and healthcare, last time I checked, pretty doggone important. Bertha Coombs, thank you. Big. All right, speaking of strikes and unions, this is a perfect transition and a good time for a quick economics quiz, right? Who, who doesn't want an economics quiz? All right, here you go. True or false? History shows that strikes by unions can help lead to inflation. Most of you, would pro I'm guessing, I'm reading your mind, would probably say true, but according to Goldman Sachs, it's false. In a new report on the topic, Goldman's economic team writes, quote, the more mundane reality is that union workers are distinctive mostly in having longer-term contracts, and as a result, 
have had to wait longer for a chance to win the same outsized cost of living adjustments in response to the inflation surge that non-union workers on shorter contracts had already won. They add that union wage growth is actually a lagging, not a leading indicator. Huh. Joining us now for more is Goldman Sachs chief U.S. economist David Miracle. David, uh, fascinating stuff because I think most people probably would have said, yeah, that's got to, you know, going for higher wages, got to contribute to inflation. But I guess your argument is they're getting the wage increase years after they probably should have. Yeah, at least a year after. You know, in 2022, we had very high inflation, especially in the aftermath of the war in Ukraine breaking out. Workers, both unionized and not unionized, looked at that and said, I deserve a bigger cost of living adjustment this year. And in an extraordinarily tight labor market, they had the bargaining power to get those big wage increases. Now, since then, the labor market has gone from kind of historically tight to something more like what we had in 2019, still very tight, uh, but not as extreme as last year. And those inflation shocks have subsided. Headline inflation, near-term inflation expectations have come down. So the two big pressures that drove wage growth up last year to about 6%, which is about double what we saw in the years prior to the pandemic, both of those pressures are still with us to some degree, yeah. but subsided. Uh, and I think what we're seeing with the unions is the average unionized worker has a contract that lasts three years, not one. So many of them did not have the opportunity in 2022 to say, I deserve a bigger cost of living adjustment, too. Uh, and we're now seeing with a lag those longer term contracts get renegotiated. But yeah, I, I got to imagine, and I don't want to put you on the spot, David, I got to imagine because you referenced in your note, very good note, by the way, American Airlines, UPS, United Airlines, and you, or United Auto Workers asking for more, that when, when the contract does hit, there's probably some blip in the inflation data, at least related to those industries, is there not? Absolutely. You know, these things do make a direct mechanical contribution to overall wage growth and indirectly probably to price growth as well. Only about 10 percent of the U.S. workforce, though, is unionized. So the direct contribution is actually not that big. Sometimes the headlines overstate a little bit as well just how big the wage increases are. You know, they might report, for example, oh, there's a 30 percent increase in wages in this new contract. But if that kicks in over five years, you know, then you're talking about something closer to six percent per year. That's a little bit above where broader wage growth is. Um, But when you account for the fact that only 10 percent of the workforce is getting that, the contribution is not more than a tenth or two to wage. I can't let you go, David, without a macro question. Are you guys and your team there, Jan and the rest of you all, are you worried about the U.S. job market? It looks like it's weakening fairly quickly. Uh, Not so much. Uh, I think what we're seeing is a normalization. There was a lot of room to go from where we were in 2022, which was a truly historically overheated labor market, to something that is less tight, but still a long ways from recession. That's the goal. That's what we need to accomplish to get inflation fully under control. Uh, So far, it looks to me like healthy normalization is what what we're seeing. Uh, If you look at many different indicators of labor market tightness, the message is we're now a little bit tighter than in 2019, which was one of the best labor markets in U.S. history. Uh, Certainly haven't yet overshot into problematic territory. David Miracle, really fascinating stuff. And uh, I wonder how people at home did on our quiz.
David, thanks. Have a good night. We'll see you again. Thank you. All right. Still ahead, will soaring interest rates turn out the lights on America's renewable power dreams? A CEO of one of America's biggest electric companies, Calvin Butler of Exelon, joins us exclusively next. All right, welcome back. Time for our quick last call watch list where a couple of stocks are grabbing our attention tonight. First up, VinFast. Remember them? Hitting the skids, Herb Greenberg warned you. Shares the once red-hot Vietnamese EV maker fell another 14%. VinFast is at eight bucks. That is not only below its listing price, but VinFast, we had Herb on about five weeks ago, was above $90 a share. Folks, things move quick. All right, next up, Disney investors, they could use some magic. Stock closed below $80 today, the lowest close for Disney in nine years. Also, it is 25 cents above its intraday low from March 2020 during the worst days, the COVID panic. Disney announced today, by the way, that it will offer discounts on child tickets here in America for a limited time next year. Disney clearly wants to get more people in the parks. Meantime, turning now to energy, because one big trend lately in the markets has been higher interest rates slamming shares of utilities and power companies. It's really just for two reasons. Number one, higher rates can compete against utility stocks' dividends. But two, large-scale power projects are very expensive. So high borrowing costs can make many of them uneconomic. And many around America are getting canceled or the developer is looking for higher electric costs from you as a condition to complete the project. Now, as we know, the White House driving a transition to more electric power. The president recently wrote, quote, because of our historic clean energy action by 2030, electricity deployed through the U.S. power grid is expected to be powered by 81 percent clean energy. Now, the president talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, 81 percent by 2030. So where do we stand now? Well, it varies in different parts of the country, but you can judge a bit for yourself. Today, only 4% of New England's grid powered by renewables. The Mid-Atlantic, about 10%. And in the Midwest, 77% of their electricity generated by natural gas or coal. So the goal is to basically invert America's entire power generation in six and a half years. It's a bold goal. Let's talk about that and everything else going on with Exelon CEO Calvin Butler. They may be providing your power right now. They're the parent company of Pico, Pepco, ComEd in Chicago, Atlantic City Electric, and more. Mr. Butler also recently speaking at a New York Times climate panel, and we are pleased and honored to have Calvin Butler on the program tonight. Mr. Butler, thank you very much for joining us. You are not a power generator. You are a transmitter and distributor, but... You know, I was trying to make those points to show our audience that, that we have a long way to go. Can we even get close to that? We can't. We can get close. And Brian, first off, thank you for having me. We can get close because I think the commitment and the intent from our industry is definitely there. And it is there through partnership with all of our jurisdictions because state by state, as you alluded to, they all have different goals, but their goals are all aligned by combating climate change and decarbonizing our footprint. Having said that, it takes a commitment from everyone where we have to join in and really invest in the infrastructure that's needed to drive that change. Given where interest rates and borrowing costs are right now, do you think your partners who, who build these things, could, can they build them profitably now? 
You can build them. And I think to your point, the federal legislation that was passed, the Inflation Reduction Act, is a big driver there because they are giving economic incentives for these renewable energy companies to further invest. But having said that, the core to all of this is ensuring that the electricity that we deliver and provide is affordable. And that is the challenge that I think you're running into. State regulators are saying, look, when is enough enough? We can make this transition, but let's do it in a very methodical way without inverting or hurting those who need it most. Yes. Yeah, speaking of the Inflation Reduction Act, it can be confusing. Uh, and please help us clear it up because I actually don't know myself. But as I understand it, a lot of the, the tax credit provisions, Calvin, are not are not written yet. So is it possible for for you, for Exelon or your partners to make large commitments without knowing where these tax credits may actually fall? I think I think to your point, the details there, but they can make commitments because there is a commitment there for solar, wind, battery storage, nuclear. There's a commitment there. And that is the assurance that a lot of these developers are receiving. Now, what you may be referring to is actually some of the details on how to access those dollars in real time. Yes. But I believe the federal government has been very clear that we're committed. But you do see some fallout because what you're finding is that pushback on how soon people can access those dollars and where can they be deployed. And you see some of that noise around offshore wind specifically. And you see that noise in some of our jurisdictions. And as the deliverer of that energy, we also have to make sure the grid is ready from a transmission standpoint, because we Mm -hmm. have to be in position to deliver that power where it's uh, generated. And that is becoming more of a challenge. How big of a challenge is that? I mean, I'm I'm talking to, to power companies on and off the record developers, utilities. And they're like, Brian, if I start today, maybe I'll get, you know, I can't build a big solar farm because I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to actually get the power lines built that will take the power from the solar farm to the town. And even if I do, it's eight to 10 years. And by that time, my solar farm has suffered eight to 10 years of weather damage. Right. Brian, your, your, your data is accurate. I mean, we know siting of transmission lines is one of our biggest challenge. But again, we're working with our regional authorities, we're working with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission on what can we do to expedite that process? Because until that transmission system is built to handle this wheeling of power, it is going to be difficult. But having said that, Intrastate travel, we have a transmission system that is ready and being built within our current footprint. You started this segment out by talking about our six utilities. You think about where we are along the mid-Atlantic, we are able to solidify our transmission system intrastate to ensure that our customers are able to get that in a much more expedited manner. But to your point, interstate transmission build out is becoming more difficult. Does climate factor into where where we can build things and the risk thereof and the cost to? Climate factors into how we build. What are the standards and the codes in which we're building to? So for example, what goes underground 
Does it make sense to build a transmission system that's running underground or in the typical fashion? We need to take climate in consideration for that. We need to take climate in consideration where do we elevate our substations to manage the flooding that is occurring? What are the specifications on the poles that we are built, we're putting into um, rate base now? All of those things come into play. But because of climate, because of the changes, we have to do this faster than quicker than later because of the impact that climate is having on the grid and more importantly, on our customers. You know, my wife is from the great city of Chicago. And I'll tell you what, Chicago, it's got some issues. We know that. But what Chicago doesn't have is a power problem because of nuclear. And I don't understand. I cannot understand why we don't talk more about nuclear. I think it's half more than half of your power to ComEd is nuclear. It's zero yeah. carbon emission. I understand the mining of uranium and everything like this. This is not Chernobyl. This is not Three Mile Island. Why are we not having more conversations about nuclear, which, yes, is incredibly expensive up front, but over 70 to 80 years, the levelized cost of energy is some of the lowest. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And just as a courtesy to your, your viewers, we, we owned Constellation and we separated from Constellation, which is the nar- largest nuclear operator in the United States, a little bit over a year and a half ago, almost two years now. And to your point on Illinois, 65% of the baseload generation in Illinois are those nuclear plants. It's clean and it's dependable. I think they have a capacity factor well over 93%. Yeah, so they're wow. running. That's baseload generation you don't get from anywhere else. And we will not meet to your point, Brian, we will not meet our climate challenge or our goals without baseload generation. And that's largely being provided by those nuclear plants. That's it. Nuclear, we, it's, it's funny. It's not in the conversation, but maybe it will be now. Uh, real pleasure to have you on, Calvin Butler. Thank you very much, and uh, welcome back anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Good discussion there. On the ground, knows what's going on. All right, coming up, a mighty or cracking consumer, some wildly divergent CEO comments. We have investors scratching their head. It's a segment that we're gonna call K-Parts Unknown. Next. All right, call this maybe the consumer canary in the coal mine. A lot of alliteration there. We have dis- I tried to say that and I bombed it. All right, we have discussed the strong resilience of the American consumer, but some cracks are beginning to emerge. Thank you. New credit card transaction data from Citigroup has revealed that American spending in September, the weakest so far this year, down almost 11 percent. Is that just a one off or are consumer warning signs beginning to pile up? With us tonight in a segment we are calling K-Parts Unknown is Christina Parts of Evelis. I was on Squawk Box this morning. I deserve yeah, a you're break. Making a, you're making excuses. Correct. Uh, to that city report, it's actually been five months of deceleration. So maybe you could argue, yeah, we're starting to see some cracks in the economy. And there seems to be two camps of this. Those that believe there are some signs, major signs that we can't deny in the American economy. And those that say, hey, no, the American consumer is resilient. So let's just go through some of those uh, four parts with why we're seeing the cracks in the consumer. You've got the student loan uh, repayments that have really just resumed despite what Biden today just uh, canceled $9 billion. There's still a lot of people that owe money, and this is after a three-year pause. The average every month is two to $300. So imagine that money that used to go towards maybe buying or your Netflix account or discretionary spending is going to have to go to these student loans. Then you have the pandemic child care aid, 
purchases now expired. Huge amount of money gone. Credit card and auto loan delinquencies are above those pre-pandemic levels. And then the declining personal savings rate. And that graph you're seeing on your screen could only fit four points. I really wanted to put the mortgage rates that we know the 30-year fixed is coming ever so close to 8% and pushes out so many people in the market. There it is. There it is. But everybody knows that. Everyone knows it, but still. That's not news. If everybody knows it, it's not news. Those are reasons as to why we can argue that there's a lot of cracks in the economy, Mm. that there's going to be a lag effect. We still haven't seen the effect of the student loans. We still haven't seen the effect of the child care pandemic uh, expiration. And then you can take the other side of the equation. Well, CEOs are. And it depends on which CEO you listen to is sort of where you go with it, right? Like there's some CEOs that are like, we're all doomed. And then other CEOs like, never been better. It, de- it depends on almost uh, who the CEOs are. What do you are- sell, basically? Exactly. Who, which income bracket they're catering to. So, for example, Big Lots. Uh, Big Lots CEO, just at their latest earnings call, they said uh, the core lower-income customer remains under uh, significant pressure and has limited capacity for higher-ticketed items. But then you just juxtapose that against the Carnival CEO, and he said just recently, just a few weeks ago, which shows that people are still spending more, you know, those that make a higher income, but are still spending on their trips I continue to be encouraged with our revenue trajectory heading into the next year as we see no signs of slowing. The Carnival stock is actually up 64% year to date. And there's other examples. Live Nation. Uh, they said that they, they believe they're going to hit record ticket sales. Yes, we can say Taylor Swift has a lot to do with that and Beyonce, but that's still... That's a lot of money that people are spending on these concerts. So there's this discrepancy in this market My guess right is now. it's the same people. Precisely. Yeah, it's the right. They're going income. to Taylor, so they're going, they can afford to do those things. While the person going to Big Lots, probably right. lower income consumer, is just struggling to put food on the table. But there are just a few signs of the resilient consumer too, because I talked about the cracks. The resilient consumer is that personal income has been up in August. The, in Q2, you had the U.S. household wealth, wealth yeah. that hit a record. Uh, home prices, and that's adding yeah. to your personal wealth, you yourself, Brian. So yeah. that's adding to why we're still seeing such a resilient consumer. So it really depends on which side of the equation you are, um, data dependent, and would influence the. A, lo- a lot of it, to your point, also where you live. If you live in Guelph or Sarnia or Yellowknife or Mississauga. <laughs> Do you think our audience knows? I hope there are a lot of Canadians. I had to watching. throw. They, I, I know. know. You, every time you have to throw in <laughs> Canadian line. Waterloo, eh? It was like a Caesar. I'm not from Waterloo. I, I, I'm from I know Montreal. that, but you told me not to bring it up. <laughs> I specifically said don't bring up. Which is, if you do that, I'm going to bring it up. I'm still eight years old inside. All right. It is time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, all the news that matters in the world of business, and it's a fat bear week. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Get ready to get even lazier. Uber will now return your packages. Drivers will pick them up and drop them off at the post office, UPS, or FedEx, all for five bucks. The 2030 Soccer World Cup goes to three continents. FIFA announcing the tourney will be hosted by Morocco, Spain, and Portugal, but opening round games will be held in Uruguay, Argentina, and Paraguay. That sounds like a lot of flying. Rare whiskey at auction in Scotland. A one and a half liter bottle of Bowmore Stack could go for more than six hundred grand on Thursday. The 82-proof single malt whiskey was distilled back in 1962, not bottled until 2017. An out-of-this-world collaboration product teaming up with Axiom Space and NASA to design spacesuits for the 2025 Artemis III lunar mission. And it's the first day of the annual Fat Bear Week at Katmai National Park in Alaska. The event is, quote, a celebration of success and survival of brown bears, gearing up for the hibernation season by chunking up.
Fat Bear Week. All right, coming up, another billion-dollar lottery drawing just hours away, and you're not crazy. You might be, but these billion-dollar drawings are having a lot more often. We're going to try to explain why next. All right, time now for your suggested daily dosage of random but interesting. And today's RBI is on the lottery because tonight's Powerball drawing is worth a total of $1.2 billion, which would be about $551 million when you win and take the lump sum. We can take, we can dream, right? But it also occurred to us that there seems to be a lot of billion-dollar lotteries these days. So we want to figure out if that was true or just recency bias. It's actually true. In fact, between tonight's Powerball and the Mega Millions lottery, This will be the fourth jackpot over $1 billion this year, which is amazing when you consider that there have only been nine total jackpots ever over a billion. The first one was in January 2016. Two and a half years later, we had the next one in 2021, and the next six have just been in the last two years, including the fourth four this year. Ticket prices have remained the same the entire time, So it's got to be either a longer gap between winners and or there are likely more people buying lottery tickets, probably some combo. And if you're going to get yours right now, here's what lottery research firm USA Mega says are the five most popular winning numbers since they began tracking the data about eight years ago. 61, 32, 21, 63, 36, and the most popular Powerball number being 18. Those are not tonight's winning numbers. Those are are the most popular winning numbers, according to USA Mega. So here's the billion-dollar question. Is there any way at all, besides buying a billion tickets, that you can tilt the odds of winning the lottery in your favor? Let's ask Tim Chartieri. He's a professor of mathematics and computer science at Davidson College in North Carolina. I love this. Is there a way that I was joking about buying tickets? If some hedge fund bought a billion, is there a way to buy all the number combinations, or would you never be able to make money? Yeah, you wouldn't make money because you have a, you you really don't have very good odds, and there are a lot of combinations. You have over three three hundred million combinations, just about that in the Powerball. So that's a lot of money. <laughs> it is incredible. And do you have a rational explanation for why we've had four billion dollar jackpots this year? There are really two reasons. There are a number, but there are two primary reasons. One, they did change the rules of the game, so that that's part of the reason we began to see the higher jackpots. The other thing is, is partially, a lot of us wait for the billion dollars, is that when the prize is even at half a billion, $500 million, there's only enough tickets sold that there's about a 5% chance of a winning ticket being pulled. But when we hit the billion dollar mark, it's about a half. Here's a, it's a random, I should know this. I went to a technical college. I I did not do well in math, but I did, I did do it. The odds should be the same. Are the odds the same whether or not the jackpot's at a billion dollars or $200 million? And so if you do only randomly play the lottery, right, because you're going to probably lose and waste money, you might as well do it when it's big because your odds aren't better. I've heard people say, well, there's fewer people buying tickets for the lower one, so I have a better chance. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're doing well with your tech degree. Is that that the the odds of someone winning goes up when the prize is bigger because more people play, but your odds are the same no matter when you play. Which is like one in I think you said 292 million. 
Yes, it's like me picking one second in the last nine years, and you have to guess which second I chose. That's the kind of odds you're playing. 9.42 a.m. on May 17th. I don't, Tim, it was yeah, almost. great stuff. Thank you. And by the way, if you're playing, good luck. Folks, everybody, if you're playing, good luck. If I win, I won't see you tomorrow, but I probably will. Have a great night. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.